Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Heart of Memphis, a weekly conversation exploring the contours of the arts, music, culture, commerce, and faith right here in the city of Memphis. If you haven't yet, go and give us a rating or a review and subscribe to us on your podcasting app of choice. We would love to get the word out about the amazing conversations that we're able to have here on The Heart of Memphis. The Heart of Memphis is brought to you by a partnership between Lindenwood Christian Church and Lux Creative. Hello and welcome back to another episode of The Heart of Memphis. We are excited to have with us today Reverend Dr. Ryan Starr. Ryan, thank you for taking the time to be with us today. It's great to be here. Thanks for asking. Uh, we've been trying to get you on for a couple of uh, couple of weeks now, and we're able to set it up, and we're really grateful for you taking the time to be with us. It's good to be here. Good to be here. Well, you are not a native Memphian, so you've been here 10, 11 years. Where are you from? Where, where, what is home for Ryan? So uh, home growing up was mainly in northern Oklahoma, in Bartlesville. I was born in Madison, South Dakota, near the Minnesota border, so I sometimes have a different accent when I get really tired. (laughs) And then um, went to college in uh, East Tennessee at Milligan College, and went to graduate school in North Carolina, and then uh, later at Emory in Atlanta. So how does a boy from Oklahoma end up in ministry? And I'm not going to make any Boomer Sooner jokes or anything like that, but how, how, did you, how did you go that journey? We're going to talk about sports a little bit. I know sports helped lead you to college. It's something you're still real committed to today. But when did you first start to feel that, that nudge, that pull, dare I say that call, into ministry? Yes, it was actually from another person. Uh, so childhood minister was going to be gone. I was, I think, 14 years old, and he saw a calling and told me. I had never really considered it before, Um, so he asked me to preach for him. So I worked, I think, for three weeks really diligently every day to prepare this really grand sermon out of numbers. Not the best choice. (laughs) Numbers. And I think at six minutes, I finished my sermon, and we all got to go home early. So you were invited to be the guest preacher every single time, probably. (laughs) Uh, No, I never got invited back. But um, until I was older. So that, that puts you on a path. You, you mentioned uh, Mill, Milligan. You made your way to East Tennessee. What, what lured you out of, out of the, the Sooner State to the east end of the Volunteer State? Yeah, so I love, uh, love Oklahoma, but I had never been to mountains before, and they were starting a program at this small college in East Tennessee I had never heard of and uh, flew out there. It was the only kind of non-Division One program I looked at. And just fell in love with the, the coach and the program and the mountains. And uh, just always drawn to the mountains since then, as great as Oklahoma sunsets are. So is that soccer? Is that cross-country? Oh, that was uh, cross-country. It was cross-country. So you're one of these sadistic people that loves and to go run 10, 12 miles just for the fun of it. Is that right? Yes. So you, you've mentioned this to me before off-air. You're, you're, in, you're in a running club here in the city. That's something that you're still committed to. How, do, how in the world does someone just go and run 10 miles recreationally and call it a good time? Um, my suggestion is you don't start with that. Okay, good. So... Um, I started running, um, so I couldn't read until third grade. Uh, I was super hyperactive, and I uh, started running with my dad when I was about six years old because I got lots of one-on-one attention, and eventually I could do the four-mile run, and then every time I started talking in third grade, my teacher would send me out. I'd go run two miles around the campus, change my clothes, come back to class, sometimes two or three times a day, and uh, 
she was great. We would then um, count every 100 miles, like the class would get ice cream cones, and we would do different kinds of pie graphs with it. My mother thought it was counterproductive to give me ice cream as a reward. but um, Well, I can't imagine why. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that so I started, started running more and more. It was a couple of times during the day. Oh, my goodness. You know, they say that we don't need this top-down approach to education, and we need to take the need of every student seriously. It sounds like your teacher took the need of you. <laughs> she did. But also in small towns, like, I had the same teacher in first and third grade. So since she couldn't teach me to read in first grade or second grade, she decided maybe to take a different approach in third grade. So, Well, having a, a terminal degree, a doctorate in ministry, I'd say it, it worked out for you eventually. It did, although I still ask other people to read in church for me, so... Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. I remember when I had to read a Bible verse in front of the church. I was probably 13 or 14. And the chunk I got was, you know, the Jebusites, the Hittites, the the, the Lamorites or whatever. And I remember being so confused. And my dad said, just say it with authority like you know what you're saying and everyone will believe you. Yeah, so it's like everything else you preach about. Just like everything else that we preach about. So you mentioned preaching. You're you're in you're at Milligan College, and you begin to make this transition from college to, to graduate school. You go to Duke Divinity School. Um, God bless Coach K. Glad he's gone. Um, was that an easy transition? What made you make that leap? Because yeah. it's one thing to say I'm preaching at 14. It's another thing to say I'm going to commit to three to four years of graduate work and a degree that if I don't do it doesn't really take me anywhere. Yes, I picked seminary uh, based on an interesting choice. I really just wanted to run one more year. Um, So the NCAA used to have a policy that if you were in a degree program that your prior institution didn't have, you didn't have to sit out. So it was pretty easy to do coming from a small school. You just pick any graduate program and you're good to go. Uh, What was tricky was finding... uh, a Division I track program that also had men's cross-country and track scholarships um, and had seminary. Um, so Duke was one of those, and I went there, and I really, really enjoyed it. Well, I know all of those off the top of my head. It's got to be Duke, Wake Forest, um, Vanderbilt, and that's it. <laughs> yeah, but uh, Vanderbilt doesn't have men's oh, track. They don't have men's track. Okay. Wake Forest... Uh, did not have a seminary then. They did not. That's right. Because I know, I know, and SMU probably didn't have that. I know there's that we're getting into the weeds of total we nerddom are. of Division One football teams that have a seminary. Princeton so, would Prin- be another one. Yeah, Princeton would be another. Yeah. All right. Well, back on track. Even though you and I really enjoyed that conversation, <laughs> making your way through Duke, it somehow brings you know you you complete your graduate degree and then you go serve your first little church in East Tennessee. Was was that culture shock for you? It was, but I actually went back to East Tennessee to be an assistant track coach. Okay. And when I was there, there was a little, little tiny church called Airport Christian Church about 30 miles away that said, oh, we don't have a minister. So I agreed to work for them two and a half days a week, which you know how part-time ministry becomes full-time ministry no matter what your paycheck. Yes. And uh, they loved me really well. I loved them. I discovered if you have a church of 16, it's easy to double and triple it. Uh, so that was fun. And uh, we started doing fifth Sundays at this uh, uh, state-run nursing home, mainly for paralyzed people. And uh, it became just this huge joy. And I'd have uh, the discus and shot put boys carry horse troughs for baptisms. Oh, wow. And uh, I never guessed how hard it would be to baptize people who um, don't control their body. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so that's how I got started. So what did that teach you about? What did that teach you about yourself? about faith, about God, 
people who have little to no control over their bodies? That's a good question. I know I'm putting you on the spot you here, are. but this is where the good questions come off the script. Yeah, I, I think one of the first memories I have was just thinking, um, if I'm the preacher, I should have at least as much faith as the people I'm baptizing. And I'm not sure that I did. And the second thing it really helped me with is it's really easy as preachers, especially with each other, to, like, grumble and complain. And uh, sometimes I think about people finding joy getting baptized in a trough um, and they have almost no control. Um, it was – it left an impact on me for sure. I'm sure it did. So you're there at Airport Christian Church for several years, and then eventually the, the summons came to, to move to Memphis. And you talk about we don't realize how, uh, how narrow the state of, of Tennessee is from the far east down here to the southwest corner. Right. You're doing more than changing time zones as you come from the mountains down here to the delta. What, what brought you to, to Memphis? Well, I, I tell people sometimes that our, uh, our calling program is somewhat – it's like half match.com and half uh, interview process. Uh, so for those of not in Disciples of Christ, uh, we fill out a bunch of questions about you want to go to a city or a rural area, how big a church, education, what language you speak, and then uh, kind of narrow down the churches and then go through kind of like a corporate interview process where they select candidates and interview them. And uh, I think they interviewed with four churches, and uh, I was really excited about the potential um, at Kingsway where I ended up going. We were able to do a lot of the goals that I had. Um, so I was glad I was here. You asked about culture shock earlier. I, I didn't have much culture shock going back to the mountains because I had spent four, four years there. Mm-hmm. I was in total culture shock uh, when I moved to Memphis. Um, I told some people that I think I had less culture shock when I lived in Cape Town than when I moved to Memphis. Um, and uh, I had never been in, like, a suburb. I'd lived in really large cities and small ones. So getting used to Germantown... It was just, it was a completely different world to me. So what were some of the things that were um, a, con- a shock to you? What are some of the contrasts that you bumped up against right away? Yeah, I think uh, one of the first stories is uh, I have a um, wonderful person that worked in our office, and uh, she came into my office on my second week and said, oh, and I'll change your name, but you you haven't went to see Miss Smith, and I said, oh, well, you know, she had a surgery. I called her ahead. You want me to come pray with you? And she said, oh, that's not necessary. And I called her yesterday, and she said, oh, you don't, you don't need to come. I was like, I want to bring you flowers. She's like, oh, you don't need to. So I've tried to reach out, and uh, she said, well, that, that means you need to put your tie on, get your flowers, and go see her. And when I got to her house, I pulled up the driveway, and she said, well, where have you been? <laughs> so I realized I had some cultural learning to do at that moment. Um, but um, I think the language is a little more indirect um, than kind of the Midwestern roots. Yes. And uh, learning to be a little less blunt gets you a lot further sometimes. Um, so that was definitely a surprise. I was also, um, in a really wonderful way, just shocked um, as a runner how many amazing um, trail systems there are. I think Shelby Farms is one of the best parks in the whole country, um, Shelby Forest, and you could literally go to a different park um, every week of the year in Memphis and still not see them all. Uh, so I've really enjoyed doing that. I love how in in the deep south here we have um, 
we, we say we don't need anything, and of course that means we need a lot. Right. And don't worry about me, and that means you probably need to worry about them. And don't yeah. come see me, and I don't want to put you out. One of my, if anybody from my church is listening, please don't just mute it right now. I love when people say, "Oh, I know you're so busy, so you don't need to come see me." You know what that means? Right. It means please come see me right now. Yeah, it means please yeah. come, please come see me right now. And I never correct them and say, "Oh, I'm not busy. I don't do anything all day." Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I work 18 minutes a week. That's right. Well, I'm 24, 25, so I preach a little longer. Uh, well, I know you have a vibrant ministry at, at Kingsway Christian Church. I know it's a historic church here in the city. had been um, relocated about five, four or five miles further west before you arrived. And you talk about the culture shock of coming into the suburbs, the, the cultural uh, fluency that you had to adjust to of what, what, what do words actually mean, what the declarations really mean. But you've got this parallel track of, of life and of, of ministry and athletics that have run together since you, you know, were, were a child. Right. And, you know, one of the things I really wanted to do a deep dive on is you are a, a, a credentialed NCAA soccer official. You've done, you know, the Final Four. I've seen you on ESPN. You know, you, you, you like, we're recording this um, in, in late April. You're leaving here and going to Oxford to go do an, an SEC game. And you're just like, I can time it as long as I can get on 55 and get down to Oxford. What... What got you into officiating? Because some people, just because someone's um, competitive in sports doesn't mean they're a good official. What was the lure of, of officiating? Because we'll talk about this in a second. Officiating is really hard, and it has nothing to do with the rule book. So what got you into this? Um, again, it's, it's a similar story. I was driving my mother crazy when I was about eight years old at my brother's soccer game. And on the field near us, I think it was like the six and under. I was eight. Um, it was the head of referees at the complex and said, well, we had a referee not show up. Would, would you like to, to try it out? I have a whistle. And uh, I said, sure. And I got $4. I was very excited. My first employment. And um, I really enjoyed it. And uh, I think I was, I don't know, 15 or 16. And uh, my mother, who's an absolutely amazing mother, we had, we had a business talk. And... Uh, I think she has a slightly different memory of how this conversation went, but I just simply wasn't good enough to play college soccer, even though I loved it. But it's plenty good enough to run. So we had a conversation that uh, if you get hurt playing soccer, um, that's a really bad business decision for our family um, if you can't run. So I started officiating a lot more seriously when I stopped playing. And uh, I never dreamed I would do it, I don't know, 30 years later. Um, but really enjoyed it. Well, it's one thing to be an eight-year-old working on a six-year-old game. Right. It's another to be in front of 40,000 people in the Final Four doing an NCAA game on national television. When did you make that break from, oh, I can do high-level high school, which is, di- which is difficult, but it's a whole other game to, to go to a level where, you know, millions of dollars – I mean, this is a you know NCAA sports is a multi-billion dollar industry. That's different than the forty bucks you get to do a game uh, at White Station. So how how did how did you make that break? How did you break into that ceiling of of, uh, per, of professional officiating? Because that's what um, NCAA officials are. Right. I mean, um, so in soccer officiating, at least there used to be kind of nine levels, and you start at level nine, and then an international referee is a one. And you just work your way up. Um, I think when I really made a transition is when I when I stopped uh, running in grad school. Um, I frankly sat around for two weeks and I was just really bored. I had about four or five extra hours a day, 
I didn't know what to do with it. And uh, I said, well, hey, I should pick up a side job. I can pick my own schedule, pick my own hours. And I still remember I was doing a Hispanic league in Raleigh, and uh, I had no idea who I was refing with. And it was like a the restaurant league. So I think we played from like 11 a.m. 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. when people got off work. And a uh, guy saw me and said, why aren't, why aren't you doing college games? And I said, no one's ever asked me. And he's like, well, I'm asking you. So he was kind of that one connection that helped me break through. And he knew um, people in the ACC and just worked our way up. And one of the difficult things for soccer refereeing is you run about a mile or two more than most of the players. Um, so a lot of the really good referees struggle to pass the fitness and running test. Um, so that was really helpful to never have to worry about you know, running two miles. Mm-hmm. So what has been the pinnacle of officiating for you? Yeah, there's been a couple. Um, one certainly be did the Final Four a couple years ago, um, and it was, a, it was a really great match, um, Indiana and Pittsburgh, and they just won on a brilliant goal because – well, you know, as a referee, uh, there's an Italian referee who used to say the referee should be like the grass, like necessary, and no one remembers you. So it, it was one of those days. Um, had a really big call that was not a goal, and video review uh, backed it up, and then they went and scored a brilliant goal, and no one remembered us. Um, so that was really fun. And then um, probably um, one of the last games at Cincinnati before they had a US, uh, an MLS team um, I'd never reffed with 30,000 people, which is kind of that atmosphere and uh, the teamwork with the four people. Um, I guess you just never really forget those, those memories. Well, one of the things I know is that officiating is a thankless, uh, a thankless job. And so, you, you know, one of the things I appreciate what you do is you'll, you'll do a junior high game if nobody can do it, and you'll also do uh, an NCAA game and, and, and be flown across the country to be able to do that. But the further down the scale you get, I know there's a lot at stake in an NCAA game, but the further down ticket you get, the worse the fans are in terms of often their proximity and what they think is at stake like, I, I actually appreciate that, hey, there's a lot at stake in an NCAA Final Four game. You know, this is a lot of coaches' future and salaries and players going to the next level. There's a lot on the line. There is nothing on the line at a seventh-grade game in Germantown. <laughs> but you don't tell the parents that or they, you know, they'll lose whatever marble they have left that they've been losing for, for 30 minutes. Right. What do you believe has contributed to the ongoing, and I'm going to call it this, ongoing verbal abuse and in some situations physical abuse from parents and fans at uh, youth sporting events. So I always like to pause and say I really think 98% of parents are either average or fine, or since the pandemic, um, more and more people have thanked referees for showing up and helping out, because there's a huge shortage. Um, there was a while in my career I didn't even want to do youth games, um, not because I like the kids. It's just I just didn't want to deal with the parents. I mean, you're probably going to get 25 to $50, and it's like, I don't want to deal with this for two weeks afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what's behind it, um, but it's, it's just shocking um, and now with, uh, I feel like people didn't used to believe us, but with YouTube, mm-hmm. um, there's literally channels devoted on YouTube to referee abuse um, and for people to go watch it. And uh, yeah, it's, 
I don't know where it comes from, but I mean, I, I'm sure there's some sorts of justice that's uh, maligned in them, and this anger that builds up. Um, I, I think sometimes the closer kids get to college, the more, I mean, it may be about money at times. I mean, but the truth is a Division One coach pretty much knows who's talented and who isn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've never understood how screaming or punching a referee is going to make your kid play better. Um, I and, officiated uh, high school baseball for many years, and I remember one dad just screaming at me all the way to my car saying, you just cost my son a full-ride scholarship and to college. And I'm like, you don't – you actually just re- you just revealed your own ignorance. That's what I wanted to say, but I didn't. Right. No one receives a full ride in baseball. You know, they have eleven full scholarships spread out over a nineteen man roster, and so at best, you're usually getting about a half scholarship. And the coaches will just say, "We want you, and you're going to have to pay as much as you can." And it may change now with NIL and things like that. But uh, you know, seven years ago when I was getting unloaded on, nobody was going on a full ride for Division One baseball. I don't know how it shakes out in other sports, and Title IX balances out some of those things. But there is just this myth that you know your bang bang call is what is going to cost my kid all this money. Which, as you said, a coach you can you can be on a team that's zero and nine in football, and the kid you know Nick Saban can still want you if you can play. He wouldn't have wanted me. But. <laughs> So we we have a there's an old saying um, on the field, and I actually think it's becoming true for youth parents. And the saying in soccer is, uh, "What you permit, you encourage." So in other words, the first five to ten minutes of the game, if there's an aerial challenge where you draw the line with contact, whatever the level you might be at, that's what you're saying is okay. So like we talked about earlier, it's more about the spirit of the game than really even knowing what the rules are. Because if I can make someone laugh and prevent them from hitting someone. I don't have to deal with them hitting someone. Um, so I wonder for parents if we've, um, we've just permitted yelling and screaming so long, and somehow during and after the pandemic, it's just resulted in this huge uptick in almost all youth sports of people literally punching referees in parking lots or on the field. Um, I, I don't remember this much violence 20 years ago, um, but it's it's definitely gotten worse, or perhaps it hasn't gotten worse, but just everyone can record it on their phones. Um, I'm not sure where it comes from. So That might be part of it. I'm on a Facebook uh, group called Offsides, where it's just nothing but videos of, of parents screaming. I don't know if you follow that page. but Yeah, it's a soccer over out of Tulsa. That yeah, soccer. Yep, yeah. that's right, out of Tulsa. I was reading an article about him this morning. So, Well, one of the things I love is um, how all of life begins to, to integrate and that we begin to take things that are compartmentalized and they, and they merge together and weave together. How has officiating made you a better minister? And how has being a minister made you a better official? Yeah, I think I was... I was just telling someone the other day, they said, oh, you should write a book about, because some days I officiate a funeral and then I officiate a wedding and I officiate (laughs) a a soccer game in the same day. Um, And I think a lot of the, like, sayings that are truisms are are true in both. I mean, for example, and as a pastor, you'll know this, right? Like, what we permit early in our ministry is what we encourage from people. Um, So kind of those examples we set, really go a long ways, both negative and positive ways. Like, I've noticed when I don't complain much, other people tend to complain less, too. It's amazing how that happens. Um, I think one of the other things that I've really learned is um, I, uh, I sent you a sermon, actually, the other day, and I, I was really surprised by the, the parallel. I, 
I think it's actually this idea that if people act in good faith, like people act in good faith at church, people act in good faith on a soccer field, um, when the, the preacher or the referee is vulnerable, um, it's amazing how much the world needs that. Um, so like to be vulnerable in a sermon in an artful, truthful way uh, helps people so much more than almost anything else I do. Um, I've also noticed I, uh, I, I had kind of a fairly, uh, for soccer that is, it's not football, uh, big mistake. So um, there was a crew last year. It was the like one and two game in the SEC with Alabama and Arkansas. And not to get into all the technicalities of how offside works, but Arkansas was wearing white shirts, red shorts, white socks. Alabama was wearing exactly the opposite, red, white, red. And I completely messed up because I got Arkansas and Alabama's uniforms confused about who was onside and offside. And I put my flag up on television, and everybody just looked at me. And one of the coaches was like, you've never made that mistake. And I didn't even know what the mistake was until I figured it out. And I learned something really valuable. I just turned to both coaches and said, I screwed up. I'm sorry. We're moving on. And I think in ministry, um, even if I just forget an appointment, which happens way too often, if I just pick up the phone and say, it's my fault, I forgot, how do I make it right? Um, it seems to diffuse things and make things well. Um, it's good not, you don't get to do that too many times on, on television, but um, I think it's a really helpful, vulnerable lesson to, to be a leader um, and also just to say, look, I've done it a long time. I got it wrong. I'm sorry. How do we make it right? Um, and I, I wouldn't have known that even 10 years ago. Um, and most, and this is the difference between youth and higher-level coaches, most higher-level coaches, I mean, because everything's on TV now, right? Most higher-level coaches will say, okay, let's not do it again. Um, in youth, that doesn't, they don't always let things go. <laughs> One of the other quotes that I have always lived by from officiating was, I got this from Jeff Otterby, who was a Big Ten and NFL football official, and he said, Jeff, they can't quote silence. And so if everybody else is melting down and screaming, you should not join them. <laughs> That's fascinating. We have a line that we say you can't misquote silence. Okay. I tell yeah. people they can lie about it, but they can't misquote it. Yep. Um, which is also helpful in ministry. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Well, one of the things we always like to close with is, is to get everyone's thoughts, feedback, and prayers for the city of Memphis. You know, living here now for a decade, what, what have you come to love about this city? Yeah, I mentioned earlier the what surprised me that I love is um, I've even said it in a sermon in one of the Psalms. You'd have to help me remember which one is about the outdoors. But um, I absolutely was shocked and love um, the park systems and being outdoors here. Um, I've told my congregation sometimes during the pandemic, you know, all of us have hard days. They almost always get better if you go do something outside with somebody you enjoy. Um, it sounds like such a simple thing, but days that I don't go outside with someone I enjoy and run or bike or walk, um, they're just never as good a days as that I do. If you've never been to the Dixon um, and the tulips there, um, I mean, not to romanticize it too much, but you almost can't. It's just, it's a beautiful city. Um, everything's free. Um, so yeah, I've really enjoyed that about Memphis. And uh, the other thing I've really enjoyed about Memphis that I didn't have in a rural area is uh, the churches and the synagogues uh, really tend to want to work together to solve problems. 
Uh, we were kind of on the front end of Room in the End uh, with Lisa Anderson. There was only a couple churches. We took Monday. Uh, I had a youth minister who was a guy that loved football, and we didn't know what to do with homeless guys to entertain them, so we said, we'll do Monday night. We just showed Monday night football, and uh, unfortunately with the pandemic, uh, we, we stopped doing it and haven't restarted. But I think something like 60 or 70 churches and synagogues work together um, to, to really do a lot of good. Um, and I just really enjoy the, the colleagues that become like friends and family. So, so mo- looking forward into the future for our city, what, what are you praying for for the city of Memphis? What's your hope for this city? Yeah, again, it kind of intersects my other job. Um, I get to go to all the parts of the city, and uh, it's no secret that um, there's different problems in different parts of the city. But um, I think one of my prayers is that we uh, we find a way to make sure that like people get to eat every day, that people have a house to live in every day, that, that kids have somewhere safe to go. Um, and... Uh, we can do better. We have done better. And uh, I think we have the resources to do it. Well, Ryan, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us on this episode of The Heart of Memphis. I really appreciate you taking the time. And this, this is a fascinating story of your life. I've known you uh, for, for years now, and I feel like I learned something new every time I talk to you. It was fun. Thanks for inviting me. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much for downloading this episode of The Heart of Memphis. I hope that through this conversation, we took you to the heart of the city. If you love this story of Ryan and any of our other episodes, please feel free to share this on your social media platforms because we believe we have some good stories to tell.